Welcome to Blooming Out, Indiana's only LGBTQ plus news and public affairs show featuring music, events, and interviews, both local and global. From the WFHB studios in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Blooming Out. Good evening and welcome to Blooming Out on WFHB. I'm Jeff Poling. And I'm Ryan Shaddy. On tonight's episode of Blooming Out, we have our featured music, your weekly LGBTQ plus news roundup, and the local LGBTQ event calendar. But first, Bloomington Pride and Middleway House are teaming up for an educational series on building healthy relationships. Joining us tonight is Justin Ford, the chairperson of Bloomington Pride and a lecturer in the, Indi- in the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University, and Evelyn Smith, who is the Prevention Programs Coordinator at Middleway House. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. So we're, um, we're happy to have you guys here to speak with us. And there, there are a lot of different topics that, that we can go over. Um, but I know one of the big things right now is we're focusing on intimate partner violence in the LGBT plus community. Is that right, Justin? That's correct. So can you tell us if there's a, a problem that many of us um, may not see that, that's out there and why this educational series right now is so important? Well, I think intimate partner violence has always been an important issue. So I, I, I think it's something that, but I think it's often talked about in the, at least in my experience, in sort of a framework of, of heteronormative or heterosexual relationships. So I, if, if I think of any movie I've seen, or, or you know, if, even if you watch Snapped or any of those sorts of you know television shows, I'd say 99 times out of 100, um, it's dealing with a heterosexual relationship. And, that, I'm, and I'm sure that there are same-sex relationships that experience intimate partner violence. Uh, but it's not something we see or, or, or is, is talked about very much. And it's a tough subject to talk about in general. You know, it's not exactly dinner table conversation. So I think it's something that's tough for people to um, to perhaps want to to open up about in general. Uh, and, 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 and having a personal experience uh, with intimate partner violence, it sort of opened my eyes to the fact that there might be other same-sex couples or, or LGBTQ plus identified folks who are experiencing something like that, um, who perhaps don't feel like they have, uh, they have resources or they have community or they have someone to talk to about that. Um, I can say, you know, as a six foot one, almost 200 pound man, um, you know, when I express that I feel perhaps threatened or unsafe, it, for some people don't necessarily take that seriously uh, because of my size and build. And, 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 and that's not a fun feeling to feel like because of uh, my size or stature that I'm not allowed to feel unsafe, uh, in, you know, in, in, a, in that kind of environment or in that situation. So I think it's, it's something that we should absolutely be talking about. Of course. Um, what I find um, or what I'm interested in is do you are you finding or have you found r- real differences between heterosexual um, partnerships and, you know, marriages and things like that? I, I'm kind of wondering what you know, what we've we found, you know, is different with with the same sex partnership or, or marriage. So one of the most important things we, we want to do to start 
uh, sort of recognize all the socio-cultural myths we have around domestic violence, intimate partner violence, relationship violence, uh, sort of this assumption that it's always physical uh, is a huge barrier to people who seek uh, barrier to people seeking services and understanding their own experiences as being on that spectrum. Uh, important to recognize that we at Middleway House, you know, recognize physical violence as, as a form of intimate partner violence, but also recognize that emotional and verbal abuse, threats, gaslighting, isolation, financial control, those are also kinds uh, of violence. And when you look at that large spectrum of behavior, like on a national scale, uh, what we find is that LGBTQ plus folks are at dramatically higher risk of experiencing domestic violence. Uh, relationship violence, as well as other things that we deal with, like sexual violence. Uh, statistically, for example, when you look at bisexual women, they're almost twice as likely as heterosexual women to ex have a lifetime experience of rape, physical violence, or stalking. That's huge. And there are a lot of reasons, maybe, for why that is, which hmm, I sure. could muse about forever, but... Right. Um, so, Evelyn, tell us a little bit uh, about what you do at Middleway House. Of course. Uh, Evelyn Smith, I am the Prevention Programs Coordinator. So I work with a team of other people to make a lot of our programming happen, which includes uh, programming where we go into local schools, work with seventh graders and 10th graders. We talk with them about building healthy relationships and identifying and intervening in unhealthy ones, as well as teach them the skills they need to use consent as a life skill. Uh, I'm also currently working with a number of uh, service agencies that provide services to individuals experiencing housing insecurity and homelessness to help them prevent sexual violence in those populations. We are coordinating with Bloomington Pride to do some programming around building healthy relationships in the LGBTQ plus community. We run a series of workshops called Queer Talk uh, that specifically addresses community building. Uh, so I am involved in all of those programs as well as providing general support for shelter. So working directly with survivors. So it's sort of all across the spectrum. Um, what do you do to play a part in preventing uh, domestic abuse? So I, uh, so I do sometimes go into the schools directly and work with young people. Uh, what we find is that young people, no matter their sexuality, are getting really, really unhealthy uh, messages about what what relationships should look like. So as a culture, for example, we romanticize violence. We think that it's a sign of passion as opposed to recognizing it as a sign of danger. Uh, so I get to work with those young people, talk with them about what they actually want out of relationships and help them develop the, skill, the skills they need to set those boundaries and get those things out of relationships. Wow, I'll, I'll bet that's something that um, young people don't really get a lot of. Um, from their school, from, you know, even if they, they have a lot of support from their, their counselors and everything, that's not really an area I would think that that they would either go to them and, and ask them about or that the counselor would provide. Absolutely. It's really common uh, that people tell us, you're the first people who've ever, like, explicitly talked about this thing with us. And I was super curious. Sure. It's always a really great response to get. Cool. Justin, tell us a little bit about Bloomington Pride and how you came together with, with Middleway House uh, to, perform, uh, to, to, to form this educational series. Absolutely. So, um, so as, I, as I mentioned, so after, after a, a personal experience, I thought, I wondered um, how many other folks might be also experiencing the same thing. And I think to Evelyn's point, um, it's, it's, it's good to know 
or and to reinforce the idea that that there are other forms of violence that aren't physical, you know, and, and other ways of intimidation, other ways of making folks feel uncomfortable or unsafe um, that are not necessarily physical or could be in tandem with something physical. And so um, after, you know, after sort of doing some research on my own and coming across Middleway House and, and not that I didn't know they existed, but coming across some of their resources, uh, I just reached out and said, hey, you know, I, I'm curious as to what you all uh, do with regard to uh, intimate partner violence in the LGBTQ plus community. And I, I would love to create more educational opportunities as part of our Stand With Pride initiative. Part of what we've wanted to do is become more community based, community focused, making sure that we are um, addressing issues that that are affecting folks in the community that perhaps they don't feel like they have other resources or or, or, or uh, other folks to go to or other ways of gathering information or or a capacity building or whatever that might be uh, so it it made sense that we would partner with folks who are already doing that work uh, and then just see how we could perhaps tailor it just a little bit uh, here or there to create something that could really be meaningful and impactful for our community what kind of statistics do you have on uh, violence in the LGBTQ community uh, in, in terms of relationships. Right. So it looks different when you look at different kinds of relationships at different groups of people. Uh, what we see consistently, for example, is that women who consider themselves bisexual are at dramatically higher risk of experiencing basically all kinds of intimate partner violence, whether it's physical violence, sexual violence, or other kinds, uh, other non-physical non, non uh, types of abuse. So. We see that especially among bisexual women, but as well among gay men as a, as a population that isn't, where that sort of violence isn't recognized and is higher than people expect, higher certainly than heterosexual populations, uh, often because of the social factors that isolate people who are otherwise marginalized. Other communities, especially transgender communities as a trans woman, um, it's really important to me that our services reach out and are accessible to trans communities, but those statistics are kind of hard to come by. Historically, we've not been well studied, especially when you look at national level studies. But what we find is that probably if we're guessing and looking at maybe what the studies that we do have say, uh, it's that our rate of intimate partner violence is about one and a half times that of experienced by cisgender people more generally and lifetime incidents of sexual violence can be higher than 50%. Right? So that's a normative experience for our population, and that's very frightening. Sure, sure. Um, Evelyn, I, I'm just curious, what, what's your background, the area that, that has, has brought you into this, this studying and with, and with Middleway House? Sure, uh, I did my undergrad in biology and gender studies. I was kind of a campus activist, uh, often especially working on uh, feminist and LGBTQ plus issues, we often raised funds for Middleway House. Uh, and at a certain point, like I did a little bit more investigation, came to realize, oh, you know, Middleway House actually has done some of the work they need uh, to be accessible to trans people. Maybe not all the work, but some that made me really interested in getting more involved. I started volunteering with them and I volunteered as an on-scene advocate. So I went directly to hospitals to work with survivors of sexual assault. Uh, so I volunteered with them for about two years before I ended up being hired. And so I've been working there for about two years doing sexual violence prevention work just across the spectrum. Well, our, our um, community is really lucky to have, have you and, and have people that, are, that, are, that do have this kind of background and are interested in, in bringing this kind of, of work. 
to the community. Fortunately, they're not the only one. They're <laughs> right, but huge is, community of people. Yeah, yeah, but um, really, really glad that that you're here and both of you are here on the show talking about this because, like you said, it is something that is not talked about enough. Yeah, let's hone in a little bit on the on the program itself. So, uh, what are we what are we looking at doing? Uh, what's going on uh, during this event? Dates, times, that sort of thing. Absolutely. So, our the when we first sat down to talk, we 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 talked about sort of what we wanted to accomplish out of this and what the outcomes were to to not only educate uh, folks in the community, but also to offer resources, uh, to give them opportunity to perhaps people out the opportunity to have conversation about these sorts of things, to create some, um, you know, some some knowledge sharing in addition to knowledge building, all of which seemed like more than would occur in a 90 minutes to two hour session. So um, we, we we decided that perhaps a series was necessary um, to, to try to, to spread and 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 because it's a it's heavy conversation so it's not it's something that you know, I think necessitates time to go and and sit um, and then come back you know and, and be able to process through and not sort of rush through that process but really be able to to work it through on your own time and so that's where we came up with the idea of a monthly series um, and our, our first uh, program is going to be Wednesday uh, November 16th uh, 7 p.m. and it will be at the Hyatt uh, downtown and um, that's going to be a panel um, on building healthy relationships um, and it's called uh, survivorship mm-hmm. and services and services for the LGBTQ plus community there we go thanks Evelyn for the pinch hit uh, so so, Evelyn, do you want to talk sort of about the structure of that event? And Sure. Uh, so we're bringing together both service providers, LGBTQ plus service providers, uh, who've worked in this field, working with survivors of sexual violence, domestic violence, and the survivors themselves, although worth recognizing there's a lot of overlap there. So many of the service providers are survivors. Sure. Uh, and start off you know with with a short presentation give everybody sort of a sense of what the problem is what definitions we're using what mm-hmm. the stats are before we allow people to sort of ask questions figure out what they do and don't know because that's always a huge question for us with the lack of education that people receive what do they want us what, what do they want us you know to provide them information about sure sure so so again evelyn that's um that's wednesday November 16th, and that'll be at, at the Hyatt? Is yes, it? downtown Hyatt. And right that's the downtown Hyatt. Yeah. Um, we are just need to take a, a short music break, sure. and then we want to come back and talk more about this because there's a lot more to talk about. Um, glad you guys are both here. Both, both of you are here tonight joining us. Um, we're going to take our first music break this evening right now and before wrapping up with Justin and Evelyn as we discuss more about this important initiative from Bloomington Pride and Middleway House from the Huffington Post Queer Voices. Do you need a good country tune to hold you over until Dolly's next album? Then look no further than the new gay ditty, Two Men Who do si do written by Robert Gould and is composed by Rob Arbello. The song is accompanied by a, a cute animated video courtesy of Alex Salzberg. The song and video tell the story of two country boys who happen to like to dance together at the rodeo and hope to walk down the aisle together. Better yet, if you love the song, you can download it by donating to help marriage equality. Break out the cowboy boots, help marriage equality by doing a little do do yourself. There's more of, um, about to be some line dancing here in the studio with Robert Gould's Just Two Men Who do do 
Just listen to Two Men Who Dosey Do here on Blooming Out on WFHB. We're back here in the studio with Evelyn Smith from Middleway House and Justin Ford from Bloomington Pride, and we're discussing a, a new educational series about healthy relationships. Um, where we left off, um, Justin and Evelyn, was um, the Wednesday, November 16th at the Hyatt downtown. Uh, the we're You're calling that a... Uh, what a series it's the beginning of the series it's a kickoff for our series kickoff of the series okay. our first session called building healthy relationships and LGBTQ plus community conversation uh, we're gonna be talking about how people uh, work with 
uh, like ha- what sorts of services exist for survivors, what survivorship looks like for LGBTQ folk. Uh, we're really excited. Again, why is this so important for our community to uh, actually come and, and take a listen to this series? Uh, is there going to be a speaker at the series? If so, um, who? Sure. Uh, so as I mentioned, for our first session, we're going to do a panel. We're going to mm-hmm. focus on the collective wisdom of our community, right? Mm-hmm. Give, give people a chance. Uh, afterwards, though, our follow-up sessions, uh, I'm going to coordinate with my team at Middleway House uh, to do programming specifically on how we build healthy relationships. So talking about things like how we set boundaries, uh, how we communicate with our partners, how we uh, identify and intervene when something isn't healthy with our friends and with ourselves. So there's a huge spectrum of activities that are involved with that. Sure. Um, we're really excited to work with, you know, LGBTQ folk, see what they know, what they want to learn. Right, right. But a lot of a lot of what you're talking about is it 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 um, breaks the through the boundary of of the difference between heterosexual, you know. Um, and same-sex partnership and everything else. I'm, I'm sure there is a lot just in general that people don't know about this and don't understand. Absolutely. And I, I also think that, you know, uh, so my, my undergrad degree is in communication and interpersonal communication, and my capstone was in intimate communication. And a lot of what we talked about, which I found really fascinating, was that how a lot of our sort of goals for relationships are sort of driven by the media, right? So what we've seen in movies, or what we've been, these things that are modeled that are super romanticized, um, but they don't really give you the skills or the tools for what happens when the rubber meets the road. You know, so when you're in a relationship and you're not able to communicate as effectively as you want and all of the, you know, the, the ingratiation period or the honeymoon phase wears off and things get real, what do you do then? You know, how do you navigate those things when things get difficult, when you're heated, when you're upset, when you're disagreeing, when you don't know what else to do? Or Maybe you're upset about things that have nothing to do with each other. You know, you have tons of responsibilities and you're thinking about if we want to get married or we want to have children and and you have to pay bills. And so when life gets real and all those stressors hit home and then you have to also have the bandwidth for your romantic partner and sometimes that runs out, how do you deal with that? Um, and, and enough folks aren't really talking about that in general, let alone talking about that in the context of a same-sex relationship. And so sure. I think there's a lot to be gained by opening the dialogue here Mm-hmm. At the very least, um, so that people, even if you have, it's not something you've experienced, you begin to understand what to look for. You understand healthy and unhealthy patterns. You, maybe you identify some of your own behaviors that you never knew you were you were exhibiting um, right. that may not be the healthiest. So I think there's a lot of upside here. Yeah. If so, any of our listeners are experiencing um, domestic abuse right now, uh, how should they, or what what should they do? So one thing we always want to emphasize is, you know, if you think you might be in an abusive relationship, your first priority is to keep yourself safe. You choose whether you feel like accessing services is safe for you. If you would like to, you're always welcome to call the Middleway House Crisis Line, 812-336-0846. That's our crisis line number, 247-365. and that all, you know, that's a place for people to talk to, talk through their options. They can do safety planning to talk about how they might deal with a violent incident if something happens. Or maybe if it hasn't been physically violent, they can just talk through what is going on and whether, you know, that might be abusive, whether they might want to seek, you know, a separation, something like that. Uh, yeah. Are, are some of the people um, that, the, that, uh, that we would be calling and talking to, Evelyn, um, are they... Or do they have a, a background, a uh, um, training? 
you know, yeah. with, with those issues? Absolutely. So all of our staff, you know, we, this is something that we talk about in our, in our staff training and our volunteer training, you know, how do you work with any population that's marginalized? That includes LGBTQ plus folk. Uh, it also includes like people of color and adults with disabilities. Those are all areas where we have, uh, where we work to develop our competencies. And it's also all areas where our staff are reflected. So I'm not the only, you know, trans person or the only, you know, queer person who works at Middleway House. Uh, if, for example, you were more comfortable talking to somebody like that, mm-hmm. we could probably find a way to make that happen. Great. Awesome. Justin, talk a little bit about the uh, Stand With Pride campaign. Sure. So we this was launched um, in, in June, um, and, it, and it has evolved um, into really trying to like I said, to be a more comprehensive community organization. Um, that's really what, what Pride has been focused on in the last, oh, I'd say the last, you know, nine to 12 months is how do we, uh, how do we create programs, resources, initiatives for the entire community? Uh, and, and that includes, you know, communities of color, our trans non-binary community, uh, everyone who's a part of the LGBTQ plus community and all the intersections therein. Um, there is so many, I think one of the, the wonderful things about the about our community is that there are so many intersections. You know, I am a black gay man and those are those offer some interesting and unique experiences for me when those communities inter- intersect and interact for me, which is almost every day. You know, some sometimes I don't even think about it because it's pretty unconscious. So, you know, thinking about how we can represent all of our community and all of our members of our community and, and provide resources for them and to also not provide them from a place of here's what we think you should have, but rather what is it that you need? Um, what is it that you desire? How can we represent you in ways that you desire? Um, and I think that also sort of plays into this idea of allyship, you know, of, of how do we across the L and the G and the B and the T and the Q and whatever that might be, um, how do we also act as allies to each other? Because there are things that I may not understand about the experience of someone who identifies as transgender or non-binary, but I, I would like to understand to be able to be a better ally, but I need to do that based on what how they want me to be an ally rather than how I think I should be. Um, so Stand With Pride is all about trying to be as inclusive as we can um, and, mo- and as representative as we can and to really make sure that we are creating resources and, and programs, educational opportunities, community for everyone in our community. Outside of, uh, of, of this, um educational series what else does pride have coming up that's uh that's big for you well uh we have our first what we call i'll call a a pop-up event uh so i can't say too much because it's it's uh, still in the planning stages but uh, we we want to start engaging like i said a a variety of of folks in our community and Mm -hmm. so we are going to start um building on our relationships that we've made through our Stand With Pride campaign, uh, engaging with with different establishments in the community to start to do pop-up events that are some educational, some entertaining, um, but we are going to to also support local business by doing that. So our first pop-up event will be happening in December, um, and it'll be, I can tell you that it'll be uh, with, with the Malibu Grill. Uh, so, so Malibu and Pride have been working on this for a little while, and uh, I can, more details to come, but that is our, that's one of our first initiatives, uh, our, our newest initiatives that we're working on, and rolling that out uh, slowly but surely, and, and um, trying to engage different parts of our community that we've maybe not worked with before, but who have been eager to work with us. Uh, so that that's something that folks can look forward to in December. Good for awesome. you all. And Evelyn, what about Middleway House? What initiatives are we working on at Middleway House? And 
how can people get involved in Middleway House? Certainly. Uh, so we, if people would be interested in getting involved, uh, our next training is, I believe, the first Saturday in December. Uh, it's a big volunteer training. We'll talk you through some of the basics around domestic violence, sexual violence, and how you can help survivors. We figure out a way you can get involved with our organization, which might be working directly with survivors, uh, but might also be, uh, for example, supporting the, the children we have in our daycare program. Lots of different options. Uh, or getting involved with some of the programming we have coming up. So we've got a couple things. In addition to this program, we're working on with Bloomington Pride. Uh, on November 1st, Tuesday, November 1st, uh, we're working with PRISM, who is part of Pride, uh, to do a panel on homelessness in the LGBTQ community, uh, specifically working on uh, shelters and how shelters address LGBTQ plus concerns uh, with their homeless clients. Uh, I'm really excited to be working with them on that. Mm -hmm. It's really, you know. That's excellent yeah. and, and, and so needed. Yes. So absolutely. Uh, in addition, coming up on November 2nd, just the day after, mm -hmm. uh, we have our next session of Queer Talk on Relationship Styles, Intimacy, and Boundaries. Uh, that'll be at 6.30 at the Monroe County Public Library, Room 1C, facilitated by Middleway House staff and community members. Really fun thing to do. Uh, and yeah, if you, if you want something sooner, actually, this Saturday, October 22nd at 7th at the Bishop, uh, we're going to have our XO Variety Show with comedy, some bands, uh, dancing. It's just a really fun time. Oh, that sounds great. It does sound great. That's this Saturday. Yes, that yeah. is this Saturday. Nice. Evelyn, go ahead and give the, uh, in case somebody is experiencing do domestic abuse, go ahead and give us uh, that call line again one more time, please. Absolutely. So if anybody thinks they might be in an abusive relationship, just wants to talk it through, or if they actually want to seek shelter, that's also fine too. You can always call us 24-7, 365 at the phone number 812-336-0846. Great. That is all the time we have tonight. Uh, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having yes. us. Please, please come back and talk more about these important issues and topics with us. We'd be happy to. Great. Thank you, guys. That was Justin Ford, a lecturer at IU's Kelly School of Business and the chairperson for Bloomington Pride, and Evelyn Smith, the Prevention Program Coordinator of Midway House, joining us this evening here on Blooming Out. Now it's time for our next and final music break this evening. Brandon Shea, the Los Angeles-based singer-songwriter, made a splash in the pop world this year after his runaway single, So Bad, grabbed the attention of nearly 8 million people worldwide. Industry, industry giants, including Billboard, MTV, The Huffington Post, and Out Magazine have published multiple interviews and features with Brandon that not only highlight his robust voice, but his dedication to the LGBTQ community. Brandon released Pulse with Eli Lieb that grabbed the attention of over one million listeners. People Magazine said it was one of the top 12 most influential songs recognizing the Pulse nightclub victims. Released four days ago, here's Brandon's brand new single, No More Love Songs. Broken, jaded, I can't lie. I'm hesitating this time. Not just naked, seeing such. Should I stay up? Should I hide? I should have known by the look on your face that I gave you a glimpse when you wanted a little bit more, 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 more. 
Love is a thing that I've tried to erase All the pills and the thrills in the back of the troubadour Always wanted more, more Taste the liquor from the tip of your tongue But no more love songs No more love songs Can't you see that I'm just trying to get numb So no more love songs No more love songs But I'm right here anyway Told you before that the last one I had left my heart on the floor Wanted more, 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 more Love is a thing that I've tried to erase All the pills and the thrills in the back of the troubadour door. Always wanted more, more Taste the liquor from the tip of your tongue But no more love songs, no more love songs Can't you see that I'm just trying to Support for WFHB and Blooming Out comes from the back door, downtown Bloomington's queerest bar, dance club, and venue. From live bands and DJs to drag shows and karaoke, there is something for everyone every day of the week. The back door is located at 207 South College in the alley behind Atlas Bar, and more information can be found on Facebook or online at their website, bckdoor.com. Now it's time for your weekly LGBTQ plus news roundup. The HRC recently, the, sorry, the Human Rights Campaign recently uh, released their latest municipal equality index, and Bloomington was once again at the top, scoring a perfect 100. 
the Equality Index rates LGBTQ inclusion in municipal law and policy. The average score for cities in the state of Indiana was 65 out of 100, while the national average was 55 of 100. Indianapolis came in second in the state with a score of 87. Rounding out the top three, South Bend came in with an 80. The index rated 506 cities, the 50 state capitals, the 200 largest cities in the U.S., the five largest cities or municipalities in each state, the cities home to the state's two largest public universities, 75 cities and municipalities that have high proportions of same-sex couples, and 98 cities selected by members and supporters of the Human Rights Campaign and Equality Federation state organizations. The other ranked cities in the state include Hammond at 69, West Lafayette, home to Purdue University at 68, Muncie, home of Ball State University at 55, while Evansville, the state's third largest city, uh, came in with uh, 54, and the second largest city in the state, Fort Wayne, had a 42. Terre Haute rounded out the scores on the low end with a 35 out of 100. As a state, Indiana does not provide protections to LGBTQ individuals. Attempts to add sexual orientation and gender identity to state laws continue to not gather enough support with conservative legislators throughout the state. JP, this goes on to prove why Bloomington continues to be the best in Mm -hmm. the state of Indiana. Yeah, the Huffington Post is asking whether or not Mexico is ready for gay marriage. In September, some 100 cities in all 32 Mexican states hosted a so-called March for the Family protests against a proposal to legalize gay marriage. Estimates vary, but according to the National Front for Family, the coalition of civil society organizations and religious groups that organized the march more than one a million people participated. Other sources placed the number in hundreds of thousands. The large anti-gay marriage protests came as something of a surprise. Gay marriage is already legal in Mexico City and several states. And in 2015, Mexico hosted 70 pride events, making this Catholic Latin American country only third in the world for the number of such events after the U.S. and Brazil. Still, when um, President Enrique Pinheto um, announced a proposed constitutional reform to recognize same-sex marriage on World Day against homophobia, which was May 17th, negative reactions swifted, um, swiftly followed. Although it was largely Catholic churches that called for believers to march against the proposed legislation, church authority has actually been evolving on this issue. This in keeping with the leadership of Pope Francis I, who is in 2013 famously declared, if a person is gay and seeks God and has goodwill, who am I to judge? Even prior to that, when the Pope was Archbishop of Buenos Aires, he demonstrated support for gay rights, saying, I'm in favor of homosexual rights, and in any case, I also support civil unions for homosexuals, but I think that Argentina is not ready for a gay marriage law. Catholicism is declining in Mexico, but unlike in other Latin American countries, such as Brazil and Guatemala, where evangelical Protestantism was increased markedly in recent decades, the shift in Mexico is modest. As such, in the fight for sexual diversity and for the rights of single-parent families and same-sex parents, leadership must come from the church. 
Many Catholics believe in church dogma, obeying their priests, and seek to avoid living in sin. They want to do as the church mandates. But in opposing gay marriage, Mexican Catholics are following Mexican church dogma while ignoring Rome's softening on the issue. This is a contradiction that Mexico's Catholic Church must eventually face. Nor can Mexico let conservative evangelical sectors lead this debate. Recently, uh, President Pinetto met with 27 evangelical pastors who oppose the proposed gay marriage legislation. The Mormon Church was has also publicly rejected the initiative. And under analyzed element in Mexico's gay marriage debate, which includes adoption rights, is respect for the rights of children. Children are not just little people as they were conceptualized until the 19th century. There are individuals with specific rights recognized in the 1924 Geneva Declaration on the Rights of the Child. These were later confirmed with the UN Convention on the Rights of Children. The debate on gay marriage in Mexico includes gay adoption. Article 21 of the convention stipulates that in questions of adoption, the superior interests of the child must be the primordial uh, consideration. consideration, Thus, any debate on family structure must center on a child's particular individual rights to life, a name, education, health, safety, to play, to have parents who take responsibility for him or her. When Mexicans march for the family under international law, we are obligated to ask in response what kind of family family situation is best for the child. Getting a woman pregnant does not make you a father and giving birth does not make you a mother. These are titles that a child gives to a person who raises them. Is there for them ideally in an accepting, warm, and respectful environment? It is thus erroneous for the March for the Family to assume that all heterosexual couples are, by virtue of being differently gendered, poised to be good parents. Let us not fall into the trap of thinking that any kind of marriage, gay or straight, necessarily means happily ever after. Raising healthy, happy children requires sacrifice and represents a challenge for couples, gay, straight, or otherwise. Indeed, a review of scholarly literature has showed that children of gay couples have similar health and well-being outcomes as children of heterosexual couples. The notion of a traditional family unit with a mother, father, and children is still prominent in Mexico. Exact figures on public uh, perception of gay marriage vary. But one study from 2010 showed that only 22% of people fully supported marriage equality, while a 2015 Pew Research poll indicated that nearly half the country was in favor. But a generational shift is underway. In a 2011 study in in Mexico, researchers administered surveys to two groups, young people and young adults between 18 to 25 years old, and found that attitudes differed between the two. They showed that both these age groups displayed more positive feelings toward gay adoption. Mexican perception of gay marriage is clearly changing, just as it has in other parts of the world in recent decades. Still, the sheer number of people who marched against marriage equality demonstrated that Mexico is profoundly divided on LGBT rights. 
even if the proposed marriage equality bill passes, the possibility of a social backlash, including in the form of discrimination against children adopted by gay parents, is very real. Violence and discrimination against LGBT people in Latin America is widespread, despite gay marriage legislation in several countries, including Uruguay, Argentina, and Brazil. Brazil has actually seen an increase in anti-gay hate crime since a 2013 court ruling opened the door to same-sex marriage, and there, says the New York Times, a gay or transgender person is killed almost daily. In Central America, threats from criminal organizations are forcing hundreds of LGBT citizens to flee their countries. Because of the social stigma against LGBT people in the name of culture, religion, and tradition, according to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, Mexico must confront, not ignore, these widely held beliefs. For advocates of marriage equality, then, there is work to be done. It was civil society that came out to march against it, and it must be civil society that enriches this debate with alternative perspectives. As a nation, Mexico must engage in dialogue, and its people must educate one another so that we can advance together towards a more equal future. From Americans United for Separation of Church and State, America has gotten much more diverse, and some conservative evangelicals aren't happy about that. America is no longer a white Christian country, says author Robert P. Jones in an interview, in a video interview featured in The Atlantic last week. And the backlash is swift and unfeeling. In this short video, based on his book, The End of White Christian America, Jones discusses the backlash against the diversification of America and the outrage that some conservative white evangelicals feel over the fact that the white Christian family is no longer the norm. These evangelicals feel like they are losing their grip on power in America. Evangelicals are no longer a privileged majority, and they see that loss of privilege as indicative of other groups getting special rights or perks. Some white evangelical Christians seem to be punishing other groups for taking that status from them. They are lashing, uh, but others. Uh, they are lashing, but against others' advances, against marriage equality, against images of racially diverse or non-traditional families, against women's reproductive rights, and against really anything that doesn't correspond to what they think their America should be. The video highlights the anger that many right-wing evangelicals view towards the loss of privilege and their leader's backing of Donald Trump because of his promises to make America great again. Of course, the religious rights view of great America is one where conservative evangelical Christians hold 90% of the power again. They see a great America as one without Roe versus Wade, without marriage equality, and with diverse families shunted into the background in favor of families out of, the, out of a 1950s sitcom. Unhappy with cultural change, religious rights group, religious right groups latch on to slogans. Consider the phrases, put God back into our schools. They overlook the fact that children have always had the right to pray in public schools. They just can't be compelled to do it. All of the aggressive reactions from the religious right to whatever issue they happen to be vehemently opposing stems from an anger that the country isn't doing what they think should be done. They are angry that far-right fundamentalist Christian values are no longer viewed as the ideal, that they don't permeate every aspect of politics and social life, and they are going to fight like hell to get that power back. 
again, this is a, a blog post, so bear with me here. I'm in college, and in my sociology classes, we put a fair amount of time into discussions of privilege. And after taking part in these talks, I realized that it's always discussions of racial privilege, gender privilege, or class privilege. It's never about other types of privilege. Why is this? Why are we more hesitant to acknowledge white evangelical Christians as a privileged group? They definitely behave like one, especially when their privilege is disappearing right before their eyes. Just think of the debacle that occurs every December when the holidays roll around. My thinking is that we are hesitant to name a religion as a type of status, something that can give privilege or take it away. But if we're going to start a serious dialogue about privilege in this country, which many social justice movements are currently doing, and rightfully so, we have to start a conversation about all types of privilege, including the ones that are less obvious. And if some conservative white evangelical Christians don't like it, they can take it up with the other 65% of America. The Advocate gives us this article. Is, a, is this gay couple voting for Trump an important reminder? An interview with two gay men at a Donald Trump rally is stirring its sense of horror that any queer person could back a candidate who opposes them and other minorities on so many issues. The couple's explanation for their votes, however, epitomizes a reason Trump thinks he can win. Rust Belt Populism. The, people, the couple was interviewed in Cincinnati in Sweden State, Ohio, by out Wall Street Journal reporter Jason Bellini. They claimed a lot of their gay friends support Trump, despite the obvious reasons an LGBT person might not. Trump has said he wants to overturn marriage equality by appointing justices in the mold of Antonin Scalia to the Supreme Court. He's also pledged to sign the First Amendment Defense Act, which activists call a federal version of license to discriminate bills pushed at the state level. And Trump has said he'd consider reinstating a ban on transgender people serving in the military. The first man explained his Trump support as him being tired of the BS government. I worked in the steel industry, he added. I see it as I see it hardcore with the trades and stuff. It's time for a change. Trump's the man for it. Plus, I really feel he would bring more jobs to the country, added his boyfriend, and everything would just be a hell of a lot better with Trump in office. <laughs> uh, Trump continues to make a targeted pitch uh, uh, towards the manufacturing sector. He rails against outsourcing, globalization, and trade deals, while also playing to xenophobia and blaming immigrants for taking manufacturing jobs. There are LGBT people who work in factories and in construction just like there are LGBT people working as doctors, waiters, or actors. In a Bloomberg report tracing Donald Trump's Rust Belt route, the Trump strategy of appealing to the disaffected, currently Democratic, working-class white males is plotted against its chances of winning. It's why Trump still is not giving up winning Pennsylvania, where he's behind in polls. There are plenty of reasons why Pennsylvania has been seen as a sweetier than in years past. 41,767 reasons, to be precise, wrote Bloomberg in September. That's the number of layoffs reported due to large plant closings across the state since the beginning of 2015, more than Michigan and Ohio combined. Even the Internet's formerly favorite undecided voter, Ken Bone, 
with his red sweater and easygoing manner, admitted that although he supports marriage equality, he's torn about voting for Trump because the Republican is viewed as better for the coal industry in which he works. Donald Trump, he might have my economic interests more in mind, just a just from a personal level, Bones said in an interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper. He will help my coal-fired power industry probably more than Secretary Clinton and give me a lot of future a lot of future for my wallet and my ability to take care of my family. But on the other hand, if he's allowed to appoint the next Supreme Court nominee, there is a very good chance that we could lose some of the rights that we've fought for for the last eight years. Rights that all Americans should share, like marriage equality. And I do not want to see anyone's rights uh, taken away. Bone is weighing social issues against pocketbook issues in a way the gay couple in Ohio at the Ohio rally is also likely calculating. We're looking at the personal interest versus a community interest election, said Bone. Now it's time for our LGBTQ plus area event calendar. Join Robin Ox in Woodburn 200 on Thursday, October 27th from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock p.m. Ox will be speaking about advocacy for health in bisexual communities. Ox is an educator, speaker, award-winning activist, and the editor of the Bi Woman Quarterly. Her writings have been published in numerous bi, women's studies, multicultural, and LGBT anthologies. On Friday... October 28th, the 2016 Yes Film Festival in Columbus will screen The Guys Next Door, a story about a gay married couple who enlist a friend to be the surrogate mother for their babies. A Q&A with the film directors will follow. More information can be found on the Yes Film Festival's Facebook page. Also on the 28th, PRISM will be holding their annual fall costume bash. The event is open to those ages 12 to 20 and will be held at the UU Church. More information can be found on Facebook. PRISM Youth Community will host Homelessness and the LGBT Community on Tuesday, November 1st from 6.30 to 8 p.m. at the Unitarian Universalist Church. The Education Night will look at the effects of homelessness on the LGBTQ plus community. There will be a panel discussion and an examination of policies and how to make shelters safer and more inclusive. The event is open to everyone. And that is tonight's LGBTQ area event calendar. If you would like to add your event to our event calendar, please email us at bloomingout at wfhb.org. We'd like to thank you for tuning in tonight. If you're interested in volunteering here at WFHB or for our show, contact volunteer at wfhb.org. You can also call us at 812-323-1200, tweet us at BloomingOutWFHB, visit our Blooming Out Facebook page, or find us on Instagram. The executive producer of Blooming Out is Joe Crawford. The producers, Ryan Shaddy, are... Associate producer and board engineer is Sarah Hetrick, and our theme music is an original composition produced for Blooming Out by Aaron Gage. For Blooming Out and Jeff Pulling, I'm Ryan Shaddy. Please tune in again next. Please tune in again next week at 6 p.m. or visit us online at bloomingout.com. Thank you for joining us on Blooming Out. 
Be sure to find us online for past episodes, behind-the-scenes exclusives, and more at bloomingout.com. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday at 6 p.m. for Blooming Out on WFHB.